I'm your host, Edward Russell, and this week we're bringing you another session from the recent Skift Aviation Forum. Air Lease Executive Chairman Stephen Udvarhazy in conversation with Brian Summers of the Airline Observer. Please enjoy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning, uh, Steve. You know, I uh, never get nervous for these sessions because I've been doing it for so long, mm -hmm. but you are aviation royalty, and so this is a very big <laughs> deal uh, for me. Um, really enjoyed your session on how I built this. Did everybody uh, listen to that? It's a podcast. You should. Learned a lot about uh, your Thank you very much. Growing up. All right, so let's start with the, uh, the tough questions here. Uh, I want to know, uh, you had told uh, Bloomberg, I think, earlier this year that uh, airlines are like kids in a candy store. And by that, you meant they just, they see all these shiny new airplanes and they have to make these orders of hundreds of airplanes. Are we in an aircraft purchasing, leasing bubble right now? In some ways, yes. The big difference is kids in a candy store usually have parents that can afford the candy. The, the airline children don't necessarily have uh, big daddies. <laughs> some do and some don't. So how does this resolve itself? Look, um, if you look at the pattern of airlines since World War II, what happens is you, hit, you have a period of, of losses, uh, very low traffic growth, Airlines are struggling financially. Uh, they are canceling orders. They're deferring. They're, they're thinking about survival. And they have a very short-term view uh, in their strategic planning. Uh, then you have a period after the pandemic where things are looking good. There's recovery, uh, more traffic, yields are up. Uh, everything looks very optimistic. And they think that will continue forever. So they all converge on Boeing and Airbus and Embraer and order as many planes as they can, not only to grow the company, but also to replace a lot of older planes. And they generally, uh, their eyes are bigger than their stomachs, so they order more than they can really absorb financially, uh, strategically, and also in terms of infrastructure. And then when the next slowdown occurs, then they wake up in the morning and say, oh shit, I've got 300 airplanes on order, but I can only reuse 120. So they go back to Boeing and Airbus, very humble, saying, can we defer a 28 position to 2032? And this cycle just goes on and on and on. And that's why this year we have not ordered hundreds of airplanes. Usually they, people say, okay, Steve, at these air shows, Paris, Swanborough, you place these big orders. Well, we're not placing big orders because I believe a certain percentage of these big mega orders will kind of flake out or evaporate. How much of this is just uh, you know FOMO or fear of missing out that if you don't get on the books for 2029 now, it's gonna be 2027 and you are not gonna be able to get airplanes. Right. So you're just keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah, Boeing and Airbus do a good job of that. But if a first class customer goes in and says, look, I need some planes in 28, 29, 30, give us a few positions, they'll figure out a way. So uh, buying airplanes because you're panicking, you can't get enough aircraft is not a good way to run an airline. And usually airlines don't go bust by having too few airplanes. They usually go bust for having too many that they can't service properly financially and operationally. 
So all these airplanes uh, that airlines are ordering up until the 2030s, they're all essentially based on older technologies, right? 737 Maxes, well, A321s. Technology. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when are we gonna see you know, a new clean sheet aircraft? Is anybody gonna build something special and new? Well, we have an interesting situation because the laws of physics have taken us to this point where the manufacturers have pushed for fuel economy, uh, noise, environmental um, credibility, and they've kind of pushed the current technology to the limits. So there's not a lot you can improve over and above the current engines and airframes out there. So there's two alternative solutions. Uh, one is more of an electric uh, airplane, which is probably gonna be workable on smaller short haul operations, or go hydrogen. The problem with hydrogen, it's very environmentally efficient, but you need a ground support system to actually fuel airplanes, storage and delivery, and then the volume it takes for the liquid uh, uh, is, is just unbelievably large. So that's gonna be a weight and space issue. And maybe a third alternative is a whole new radical design. I'm sure all of you have seen kind of a, it's almost like a flying wing that's more fuel efficient, but it's probably not kind of user friendly in terms of configuration. You'd have maybe 20 people sitting across. So it's almost like a, a ferry boat inside with skylights, because you can't have windows, because you have that huge wing. So, uh, Look, I think we're making a lot of progress, but I don't think between now and the mid-30s, uh, 2030s, we're gonna have a new airplane uh, that will obsolete the current fleets. All right, so uh, how are airlines all over the, the world gonna meet these sustainability targets, this uh, they won't. no net new zero emissions by 2050? But, Wait, you're yeah. telling me they won't? No. But these people out there, there's gonna be a, a sustainability uh, Look, panel later this afternoon, they're gonna say, we're on it. Look, it's like uh, my kids that went to Stanford, they all think they're gonna get straight A's for four <laughs> years. And then they come back Christmas time, Dad, I got a B in one of my courses. So look, I think the industry is gonna try very hard to achieve uh, this objective, but it's gonna be very difficult. Uh, and the other thing is, we're probably looking at somewhere around 35,000 jet aircraft in operation by say 2032, 2033, um, aircraft that are more than 100 seats. How can you replace that many aircraft when you really only have two manufacturers that can barely build six, 700, 800 aircraft a year? So, okay, even if we have the technology, how do you replace everything uh, which has been you know, consumed tremendous investment, hundreds of billions of dollars of investment in current technology airplanes that are already delivered or will be delivered. So it's, it's gonna be a longer time frame. My guess is 10, 15 years longer. But that's just a Steve Hazy personal Well, Steve Hazy, you, uh, you have quite a track record and you have much better access yeah. to CEOs than I do. Yes. You're having dinner with them, you're seeing them all the time. Yeah. They're telling you things that they would never tell me they know, right? No matter what they're coming out and they're telling the media, they know the truth. Well, last week I had dinner with Willie Walsh. You know, he used to be, uh, he used to be the CEO of Aer Lingus, then he became 
head of IAG, which is British Airways, uh, American. Now he's the head of IATA. And he's one of the people that has proclaimed this objective of, of you know, 2050. And he, he understands that the headwinds to get there are very significant, not just in terms of technology and industrial constraints, but also financially. How do you refleet the whole global fleet uh, in an economical manner, even if we have some technologies available? So another uh, buzz phrase is sustainable aviation fuel and, and yeah. SAF. And we had a SCIF conference last month, spoke to David Nealman on stage about this very topic, and he did not hold back. He thinks it's all a, a farce. There isn't enough of it. It's not worth it. It's Where not are a you farce, on but it's, it's, it's a supply limitation. For example, I was at the uh, Alta conference, which is the Association of Latin American Airlines last week in Cancun. And there's not a single SAF producer right now in Latin America. So, and then how do you get the stuff to the airport? How do you, <clears throat> how do you get it so it's economical? Right now, there's such a gap between jet, uh, jet A kerosene and, and SAF. A lot of governments will subsidize it, so the taxpayer will actually be funding part of that. But how do you ramp that up to levels uh, that are meaningful, even 10% is, is pretty hard to reach. Thank you. All right, let's talk a little bit about airplanes that, that actually, well, I was gonna say actually will fly, although we have a couple of audience questions uh, in front of us <clears throat> about planes that may or may not fly. Uh, we can start with them. Uh, the first question is, is boom supersonic viable? What do you think? Technologically, yes. Commercially? Um, well, I think, I think there's several issues. Uh, the cost of getting that aircraft certified is probably far beyond what they projected. So where's the money gonna come from? And then secondly, will you as the consumer passenger pay a significant premium to fly on a supersonic aircraft? Uh, because if you don't, uh, they're gonna need 130% load factor to break even. Uh, so, so that's the issue. Is there gonna be enough funding to get it certified? And then secondly, how will they manage the economics of the airplane? Um, is it gonna be financeable? Who's gonna finance an airplane like that? Like the Concorde, you know, does it have a 10 year life? Does it have a 15 year life? It's certainly not 100,000 flight hour airplane, like a, a 767 or A321. So, how do you put a residual value on that kind of an airplane in 10 years or 15 years? So it's financeability, the cost of getting it certified, and can you get a significant premium as a passenger? The other thing is it does not have the range, for example, to go from here to Europe. It can go from the East Coast, like New York, Boston, Washington, Philadelphia, to uh, London, Paris but it can't do Trans-Pacific nonstop. It would have to stop in Anchorage or go via Hawaii. So operationally, it has some you know, limitations. And then uh, you've always been a big Boeing customer. Uh, yes. We have an audience question about the 777X, which you have not ordered. Why don't you like the 777X? It's not that I don't like it, but it's already five and a half years late. <laughs> it's over budget and there's no 
definitive horizon on when it will be certified. Now Boeing is saying it's 2025. Well, will they guarantee it? No, it's a best effort. And again, it offers only a very small incremental improvement over the 777-300ER in operating costs, but then the capital cost of the airplane is significantly higher than, say, a five-year-old 777-300ER. So when you add in the capital cost and, and then balance that against the operating cost savings, a little bit of a fuel burn advantage, a little more payload, it doesn't really pencil out. So overall, has Boeing just been too cautious with, with, with its new aircraft? Yes. Um, what's interesting, the last new airplane, all new airplane clean sheet design was a 787, which as you all know, uh, was late, uh, significantly above budget. And even today on the airplanes they're delivering, I'm not sure they're making a, a real profit. Uh, so what they keep doing is they keep extending how many airplanes they're going to build and then amortizing the R&D over those number of airplanes. Um, but since then, they have done really no new aircraft. Um, and I think in the large segment of single-aisle aircraft, the A321neo got away from them. They, they underestimated the, the impact and capability of the A321neo. And now you have a situation where the, compared to the MAX 10, the A321 has just run away with market share. It's got more range. It's got more capacity. It can carry belly cargo, you know, uh, containers. And so Boeing has a big gap between the 787-8, their smallest wide body, and the 737 MAX. And that's where Airbus has really uh, come through very strongly. And as you have airport slot restrictions, um, the larger single-aisle aircraft have become more desirable. All right, one more aircraft question for you, and then we'll uh, Just move one on. More? Just one more about aircraft, okay. more about other things. But uh, the, the 321, but the, the XLR. There's yes. some question about you know, whether this is just going to replace the 757 transatlantic, or is this going to be a game changer for you know, mid-length transoceanic flights? Are we going to see tons of new routes, that sort of thing, or is this in chair? The answer is both. Yeah. Uh, it is a game changer in the sense that I'll give you an example. On the North Atlantic, there's a huge difference between traffic flows, say, in July and August and February, okay? Um, so for four or five months out of the year, it might be profitable to operate a 787-9 or an A350 on a certain city pair. But in the low season, uh, to operate a 190, 200-seat XLR is probably more efficient, more economical. It's also a tool, as Robert said earlier, uh, that you can use it to add frequencies. You can add different market pairs, different city pairs. So it gives the airlines more scheduling flexibility. It can bypass hubs, congested hubs, uh, like in France. You don't have to go through Paris. Maybe you can fly to Lyon or Bordeaux or Nice and bypass congested hubs and have direct flights from the East Coast. Uh, we placed, for example, 15 aircraft with Air Canada 
XLRs. Uh, we're the launch customer of the XLR. And they determined that for every major city in Canada except Vancouver, they can cover all of Europe with that airplane. From anywhere in Canada except British Columbia, they can go nonstop to their European destinations. Uh, so it, it gives the airlines a lot of flexibility. They can use them transcon, they can use the airplane you know, on a short leg and then do a long leg. Uh, I'll give you an example. We have eight A321LRs, long range A321s with Aer Lingus. So they operate the aircraft from Dublin to Boston, Dublin to Washington, Dublin to Hartford. And what they do is the airplane makes a transatlantic flight to Dublin and then does a quick hop over to London and they've got the lie flat seats in business class, goes back to Dublin and then does a, another transatlantic sector. So instead of a 12 hour flying day, they can actually do a 14 hour flying day. So all their fixed costs are already covered and they can do a short leg to London or Paris or Amsterdam. So right. these airplanes have a lot of flexibility. You really couldn't do that with a wide body aircraft. Thank you. All right, so one of the things that I find interesting about your business is in the leasing business, you're kind of an early warning system, yes. right? Because yes. you're gonna find out there's softness before we are because you may have to go get your airplane or people are not making payments. Yeah. You know, the, the big headline right now is that demand is pretty steady in most places. Any areas of the world where you're seeing weakness and the people in the audience may not know it yet? Well, I think the weaknesses all boil down to geopolitical risk. Uh, for example, uh, El Al. El Al, you know, was the last airline flying to Tel Aviv and now they've really cut back. The uh, London insurance market pulled the insurance, so the government had to step in to cover insurance. We have two 7879s there. Uh, and then the whole surrounding area, Jordan, Lebanon, has had severe effect on, on air travel. Um, if something happens uh, in the South China Sea, it doesn't have to be a full military confrontation. It could be a partial, uh, naval blockade, anything like that. Those are the kind of things that will have an immediate impact. And then it's hard to gauge what the recovery period is. So I think our biggest concerns today are the geopolitical risks and their uh, impact on air travel and people's ability and propensity to travel. Uh, otherwise, we're seeing really strong growth for the next 10 years, at least five, 7% average growth. Uh, and it's usually roughly twice GDP. You, you can track that since World War II, that air traffic kind of doubles every 14, 15 years, and it generally grows about twice GDP growth. Great. Uh, I wanted to ask you some questions about the U.S. market, because that's where you're based, and, and yes. that's why we are here. Uh, Scott Kirby is trying to push a narrative. He did it on the last United Airlines earnings call. He basically said there's, there's two airlines in the United States that are making 90% of the pre-tax profit, and that's United and Delta, and everybody else is behind. The ULCCs are in trouble. The world is just about you know premium carriers now flying long haul. Uh, Scott does love his theses. Uh, wh what do you think of this? Are we just in a, a weird situation? Well, wouldn't you say industry? that if you were the CEO of Unite? <laughs> <laughs> look, uh, let, let's, let's not pretend that we're an airline. Let's look at it from the outside. Um, the LCCs of the world 
have really stimulated air travel. Uh, they brought the affordability of air travel to a much lower level where people can fly. And they've introduced air travel to tens of millions of people that heretofore never flew. So they're kind of the incubators of the industry. So I, I wouldn't criticize them too much. Okay, the product service maybe isn't the kind of standard that Scott is talking about, but I think that the LCCs and ULCCs have a big role. I mean, look at Europe. Look at what Ryanair has accomplished, uh, what EasyJet, Wizz Air, Welling, they've all really significantly uh, outpaced the, the major network carriers in terms of traffic growth and traffic stimulation. Same thing here. Look at Texas. We had a little intrastate airline in the early 70s that could only fly Dallas, San Antonio, Houston. And, and now that airline carries more passengers, almost like the way Greyhound bus used to, um, on US domestic flights. Uh, so, and then, and then look at the guys that have really done a lot of work. The, the expansion in Florida, uh, airlines like Allegiant, Spirit, Frontier, have really brought Florida and Orlando and Fort Lauderdale affordable for a lot of people living in the Midwest or in the northern part of the US. Um, yes, the network carriers have huge advantages. Their loyalty programs, their networks, uh, their alliances with uh, global airlines, it, it gives them tremendous advantages. But not all of air travel is the premium uh, traffic. It's a very important part of air travel and most of our wide bodies are dedicated to that market worldwide. But I think the industry needs different segments of, of different types of airlines, and they each fill a role. And we serve all of them. It's a very diplomatic answer. Yeah, well, in this business, you have to be a diplomat. Of course. <laughs> all right. We're in 85 countries, so I can't be too controversial. Uh, later today, I'm going to interview uh, Jude Brecker, the uh, yes. CEO of Sun Country, on this very stage. I don't know if he's out there right now, but he has promised me that we can talk a little bit about uh, consolidation in the U.S. space. And uh, you know, he told me on the phone that there are a lot of ULCCs in the United States. We picked up, uh, you know, two more of Alo and Breeze during the pandemic. And how many will survive? Is you know, another, well, that that is another day's discussion. The first question is how many will survive, and then the second yeah. is, do you think that at the low end we need to see some con consolidation? Well, tell Jude I leased Sun Country 727s when he was still in diapers. <laughs> uh, look, whenever there's capital, pilots, and airplanes, there's going to be new airlines. Those are the three ingredients to make new babies. <laughs> and. Uh, there's a shortage of pilots, but you know, if you, if you join an airline like Breeze, you can become a captain uh, very quickly, maybe in 18 to 24 months. If you join uh, Scotts Airline United or Delta American, it's gonna be, I don't have the exact timing, but my guess is at least 10 to 15 years to become a captain. So for a lot of pilots, the, a new airline is a faster route to being in command, and, and that also means higher pay uh, quicker. Uh, look, a lot of these airlines are trying new 
ways of running the business, new way of appealing to consumers, more digitalized, more uh, serving markets that don't have flights currently. And uh, Avello and, and Breeze both have done a lot of, you know, bypassing hubs and, and trying out different market pairs that nobody's ever done before. And what you're seeing is there's probably about a 30 to 35% failure. In other words, they try 20 new routes and maybe seven of them just don't work. And you see them pull out and try something else. So, you know, it's kind of an experimental situation where you find niches in the market uh, that the big guys don't serve. But should they consolidate at the low end? Uh, because of financial considerations, stakeholders, shareholders, they will be pressured to consolidate. Uh, but then we have situations like the JetBlue Spirit merger, which on a uh, university term paper makes a lot of sense. But when you look at integrating two airlines with totally different cultures, different aircraft configurations, uh, it becomes very, very problematic. And we found that out when uh, Alaska bought uh, Virgin America, that they had two incompatible fleet structures and we helped Alaska get out of their A320 fleet and put in new 737 Maxes. But the complexities involved in putting two companies together that are totally different, that come from different pedigrees, is a nightmare. So is it fair to say that you do not think that the proposed uh, JetBlue Spirit merger is a good idea? Uh, if I was running those two airlines, I would have taken a different track. But I'm not a shareholder in either one. So. Great. I'm looking at this from, you know, 45,000 feet. <laughs> Thank you. All right, we have a few minutes left. Uh, I think we have some pictures of you uh, oh, no. from, from the good old days. Yeah. Did, um, did our lawyers authorize this? <laughs> one, one of my favorite things about you, Steve, oh, is that you still, you still love airplanes as yes. much as you did when you were a kid, right? Yeah, and I was stupid enough to start an airline at the age of 22. <laughs> the only guy that was getting paid with a fueler the caterer and the guy that leased the airplane to me. So I, I did want to ask you this because I, you know, I listened to this episode of how I built this and, right. and you were great and you talked about the good old days, but you know, if you had to start an airline now, and I know that you never would, but you know a lot more than you did then, yes. what, what would the model be? Would you go ULCC? Would you go hybrid? Would you go premium? Where do you think the money is to be made? I would probably go somewhere between a ULCC and an LCC, some really? kind of a... A breeze. No. <laughs> what would this airline look like? Um, well, I would find the most expensive psychiatrist I could find <laughs> in Beverly Hills to talk me out of starting an airline. <laughs> that would be a much better investment than putting the money in the airline. All right. So you've been doing aircraft leasing for a long time, yeah, and I know 50 it's, years. it's much more lucrative. And I, I, I have a question. I want to put you on the spot a little but bit. But I love the airline business. I All right. I'm, I'm, a curious, I'm a curious guy. But have you yeah. ever gone somewhere, leased an airplane, and you felt guilty? You, you, in the back of your mind, you thought, guys, like, you have no idea what you're doing. You really should not take this airplane. Have I ever taken advantage of a customer? <laughs> Intellectually or morally? <laughs> or financially? <laughs> yeah. We have, we have aircraft at airlines where the only jet they have is our plane. I'll give you an example. Air Vanuatu. Now, most of you probably never heard of Air Vanuatu. Um, it's, it's a little country that's kind of between uh, the coral 
side of Australia, like Brisbane and Fiji. It's kind of in between those two. I think it's got about 200,000 people, and we have a 737-800. And every time I go down there, which is like every two years, I kind of feel guilty that I'm charging these poor people like 325,000 a month. And I see kids on the street that don't have shoes, and, and every once in a while they have a cyclone, and we have to send medical supplies. And you know, so I have empathy for them, but they need our plane. It's the only link they have to Australia and New, and New Zealand. So it's, it's, it's their only lifeline to the outside world. So there's a mixture of feelings there. I get it. Uh, another one that you guys will find funny, we did a 737-400 uh, at Solomon Airways. And one time I was doing a, a Wall Street Roadshow, and we had a list of customers on one of these screens, and it said Solomon's. And they said, you lease airplanes to Solomon Brothers? <laughs> and again, it's a small country just off the coast of Australia, one jet, and they had a couple of twin otters flying between the islands. So look, it's a fascinating business. We enjoy it. Um, it's made the world much smaller. Uh, this year, there'll be close to 5 billion passengers flying, 5 billion passenger trips on the airline business. And look what it's done to the world in terms of commerce, connectivity, getting people together, mobility. Uh, the airline industry has re really changed our planet in, in many ways uh, that is really just amazing. And I'm proud and humbled to be a little part of that. Great. Uh, let me put you on the spot for one last question, and uh, uh -oh. we'll make your answer short if that's okay. It looks like an eight. Uh, I, I know you made a lot of money in this industry. You've been very successful. What's your biggest mistake of an airplane? W what airplane did you see? This is a can't miss. Let's order them, and it, it just didn't <clears> work. The biggest mistake is uh, I ordered ten A380s. Ooh. Uh, but before uh, I came to my senses, before <laughs> they were delivered, uh, five of them were freighters. Uh, to be freighters, and we in UPS and FedEx ordered the A380 freighter. And then one morning I woke up and I said, in a high wind situation, when it's icy and cold, how do you load that upper deck? And I said, that, that's not gonna work. So we canceled our A380 orders and converted them to A330s and A321s for the same value. And Airbus credited us, but that was my stupidest move. Thank goodness. Thank, thank you so much, Steve. This has been a fantastic discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Airline Weekly Lounge podcast. Check out airlineweekly.com for a new issue every Monday and updates on the latest airline news throughout the week.